the Cause, the official podcast of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights and the Leadership Conference Education Fund, where we expand the conversation on critical civil and human rights issues of our day. I'm your host, Ashley Allison, coming to you from Washington, D.C. And like we start off every show, we got the Pod Squad, where we discuss pop culture and social justice. Today, I'm joined by the OGs. I have Arisha Hatch, Vice President of Color of Change, and Gabby C., Political Director of 1199 SCIU. So it's been a year. We have so much to talk about today, so let's just get into it. All right. I know you've seen all over Twitter, all over the news, these protests that are happening. When you turn on television and you see people yelling at police officers without masks on, not social distancing, what do you think? I mean, I think the first thing that I think is if they had a tit of melanin, it would not be happening in this way. If they were black or brown or wore coverings on their head, it wouldn't be protesters storming capital to demand we opening as an organizer and a person who has worked on social and racial justice for so long. That's always the first thought that comes to my mind. But then the second is just like, it's so unsafe right now for folks to be congregating. So the very thing that you're protesting, I mean, we saw that there was a pastor in Virginia that kept his church open despite the stay-at-home order. And he ended up dying himself of coronavirus. And so, you know, if freedom means freedom to get everyone else in your community and your family sick with a deadly disease. If that's your definition of freedom, I don't even know what kind of country we live in yeah. together. And so it's infuriating. Arisha, what do you think when you see those photos and the folks congregating? I mean, one, it like feels ridiculous, but also brings up for me just how much disinformation and misinformation there is. I remember when things started popping off initially, it was like Black people are immune to coronavirus, which we now know it to be like the exact opposite, that we're like suffering at higher rates than other people. And, you know, there's this strain of folks that have been fed all of these sort of conspiracy theories about what's happening right now and why they're being told to stay in. And I think it's also just a sort of like a reflection of that. Like, I'm here quarantining with my mother, with my family in Southern California. And my father passed away right before sort of coronavirus really hit. And for us, it's been sort of like a grieving process to let go of things like, oh, we're not going to be able to have a memorial service right now. Or my brother and, you know, his fiance are, you know, postponing their wedding. And yet I'm supposed to be going to a high school reunion this year. And these people want to still have the reunion in July. I'm just like, okay, folks, let's yeah. get it together. Right. I feel like there's multiple ways people are showing up to protest. Yes, there are people with rifles that are part of militia who are charging state houses, but people are protesting all by going to the beach. And I'm like, okay, we're not all playing on the same team here. If like you're at the beach and I've been in my house literally for seven weeks and I can count on my hands how many times I've left. And I just, it's straight up like you're rude, you're disrespectful and you're inconsiderate. And I know the type of person you are. Like I do, I know you, you're the person that like, runs into my heel in the grocery store with your buggy and you don't say sorry. And I don't like you. Then let's not even talk about these elected officials who are actually opening up the states and saying it's okay. Like DeSantis, are you kidding me? I know. Can they even put on a mask correctly? It's like the level of privilege. Like there are people who would love to be able to be at home right now, but they have to go out and work. work. They got a gig that's become an essential worker career, delivering us food, 
all sorts of things or keeping the stores open. It's just like, what a privilege. All right. I talk about COVID-19 because it's really important, but there are some fun things I want to talk about. So on the last episode, we had high school students and bless their hearts. They tried to know who Teddy Riley and Babyface <laughs> were, but they clearly aged me and they were like, you mean the baby? I'm like, goodbye. No. <laughs> Happy graduation. <laughs> so we had Teddy and Babyface and we could go on for days. I'd love to hear commentary on that. But then we have Miss Badu and Miss Jill Scott that I'm like, get me live. Yes. What have you thought about all these battles? Have you watched? Are you going to watch? Gabby? I'm definitely going to watch Erica Badu with Jill Scott. That is like my dream come true, those two performing. And I feel like the women in all these challenges, whether it was like Deborah Cox and someone else did a song too. Who was it? It was Deborah Cox and... Oh, I, the, uh, Tamia. Tamia. Yeah. And I'm like, these women took this so seriously Teddy and Babyface just thought about themselves and looking cool and not about the technology and didn't test the one thing that people want to hear, which is you seeing. I thought it was so enjoyable. It was crazy. <laughs> it was like a cultural moment of the decade, okay? <laughs> I talked about it like for the whole next week. Yes. Until it happened. I mean, it went late in the night and I called my sister. I was like, you have to watch it. Like it is black culture at its finest the one thing i knew that like yes covid19 might be here in our communities but our culture is stronger than it ever mm-hmm. could be through mm-hmm. this are we sure you're gonna watch miss badu and joe scott i'll definitely watch it i'm gonna try to watch it live because i feel like the experience of instagram is like part of yeah the experience yeah but it's also difficult to watch it there. But I'm excited about it. I also watched the Neo Jante, which is so, so good. I thought it was like wonderful. I thought it was a moment for the culture. Black artists have had so much presence. And just to see the genius of all of these musicians and songwriters, it's amazing. Like they're breaking the internet and it's hilarious and fun. And you know, shout out to DJ D-Nice who really actually got this stuff trending and going and the innovation of just doing what your passion is and what's in your heart. And if you do that, you know, you'll thrive. So, you know, this is our one year anniversary. I'm so excited that Gabby C political director of 1199 SEIU and chief of campaigns and vice president of color change, Arisha Hatch came back to join us. They are the OG pod squatters. The first to ever do this for pod for the cause. We started, our episode last year on Mother's Day and we are doing our one year anniversary about Mother's Day also and we are not being Zoom bombed but we do have some special guests that are coming and joining the final part of our pod squad our moms yay (laughs) (laughs) we have Dr. Nancy C Miss Patricia Hatch and my mom Vaughn Allison welcome to the pod squad thank Thank you you. so you have done a fantastic job. You raised me, Gabby, and Arisha. So job well done, because I know we're a handful. And we want to get some advice from you. So I would like to ask each of you a question that our listeners can learn from you. So Dr. C, I want to start with you. What advice would you give young women who are trying to figure out how to balance it all, their personal and professional career? I come from a different generation than young women do now. And so for me, I would say one thing is to love yourself. And that's huge because I regret sometimes I didn't take out enough time to love myself. I was so busy doing for other people. Now, I say I'm a little bit different because I didn't have to do everything at the same time. 
I kind of did it more as a sequence. In my early life, I was Bible student and became a nurse and did some really fantastic things. But then I was really a traditional wife. I didn't just stay home and keep house. I homeschooled my kids for about eight years. And then when they were big and started going to college, so did I. I started my undergrad at age 47. Now I'm blessed to be able to teach other people's children. And so for me, it was a sequence of things and that seemed to work for my life. Mrs. Hatch, I want to come to you. You know, we're all in our 30s. And so we have seen you all live your lives. I want to know, do you have anything you wish you would have known when you were 30 that you know now just from living life? I wish I had been as confident in my 30s as I am now. I graduated from college when I was 21, got my Bachelor of Science in Math. I started teaching right away. And I just wasn't real confident. I had very strong men in my family. I'm from a family of five children, three boys that were like three fathers in addition to my father. And then I married a very strong man. So I was just always shy and in the background. And now I know how strong I am and how confident I am. And I raised two beautiful, wonderful children. My son and my daughter are very, very strong individuals very opinionated, which is what I wanted. They were the spokesman when I couldn't speak. I knew they would speak up and they always have. So now that I'm in my 60s, I feel like I can do anything. And I taught elementary school for 40 years and I learned from my students and my children. (laughs) Oh, that's beautiful. All right, Ma, coming to you. (laughs) (laughs) What is the greatest lesson you've learned from being a mother? Well, I think the first thing I learned was that what a great mother I had. You know, when you're young, you think you know everything and you're not always ready to take that motherly advice. So I realize now that she was a strong woman and what a great job she did. I tell young mothers that the one thing that they should do is live in the moment. You know, when you're young and you're raising your kids and, oh, it's so hectic and there's so much chaos and so much going on, it goes so fast. When you're living it, it seems like it's taking forever, but it goes so fast. And now you guys are grown. And when I look back at it, I think, oh, I wish I had taken a little bit more time to this, or I wish I had been maybe a little bit more sensitive about this situation. You learn a lot of things and you become wiser and wiser as you get older. But most thing I've learned is just how to love you guys and be patient and understand and now realize that you're grown and it's your life. Yes, it is. <laughs> I love all of you because I love your daughters. And of course, I love you, mom. So from Pod for the Cause, all of our listeners, but most importantly from me, Gabby and Arisha, happy Mother's Day. We love you. Thank, Thank you. you. And I happy you, anniversary. Mom. Coming up, we have a special guest, Valerie Jarrett. So don't go anywhere. I'll always love my mama. She's my favorite. Pod for the Cause, where we're celebrating our one-year anniversary and Mother's Day. And I could not think of a better guest to bring us in for year two. She is the longest-serving senior advisor to any sitting president and my forever president, Barack Obama, New York Times best-selling author, 
mentor, mother, new grandma, one of my most favorite people in the world. And I had the benefit and privilege of working for her under President Obama's White House. Welcome to Pod for the Cause, Valerie Jarrett. Thank you for joining us, Valerie. Thank you. I am delighted to be here. Mother's Day is my favorite day of the year. So I start celebrating at least a week ahead of time. And I'm so looking forward for the first time, my daughter is going to be a mother on Mother's Day. So it's extra special. Yes. I mean, I call you one of my work moms. Lots of lessons learned from Ms. Jarrett through the years over the White House. We're going to talk about her book, Finding My Voice, her time in the White House, what it's like to be a working mom, grandma. So let's just get straight to it. You have always carried a presence of grace and elegance, but you had to figure out how to navigate some of the toughest halls probably in the world, make some of the diciest policy decisions, engage leaders at the highest level of our country. Can you talk about the lessons that you learned while being in the White House that you were able to probably do better because you actually were a mom? Oh, well, that's an interesting question. I didn't know where you were heading with that. I think... (laughs) A mom teaches you that it's not a popularity contest. Sometimes you have to do what you know is right, even though the person who's affected by it is unhappy in the short term. So that kind of short-term pain for long-term gain. I think being a mom taught me patience in a way. And it also taught me how to compartmentalize. And you you could only worry about whatever you're supposed to be focusing on at that moment in time and have to let everything else go. And I remember before I was a mom at work, I would talk on the phone to my friends and I would go out to lunch and I knew I had as much time as I needed to get the job done. And as soon as my daughter was born, I would wake up in the morning actually trying to figure out how to get home. (laughs) And so I became very efficient and very organized and very disciplined, no more lollygagging. And I think those kind of early lessons that I learned when I was a young working mother and every second counted were really important in the White House where we knew we only had a finite amount of time and we had so much we wanted to get done. Yeah, a few of the things that I think the patience goes a long way, though, because as you will remember, there were some meetings where it could have been tempting to lose one's patience, right? Oh, yes. And I think you held me back a couple of times from doing that. (laughs) I do remember that just like reach over and touch you a little bit. but Kindness, you always told me. (laughs) I I remember that. I'm so glad you remember that. Yeah, kindness goes a long way. It's quite disarming. And I think with children, with my mom, for example, when I would get really angry with her, her voice would get lower and calmer. And I found it so irritating, right? And so I found one with Laura, I did the same thing. When she was going nuts, I would just speak to her in a very calm voice. And it's like, you are not going to make me lose my temper. And I'll be kind and decent and treat you with respect. And I expect you to do the same. And goodness knows that came in handy in the White House. You know, another memory I have, it's actually the first time I ever met Laura. I remember going into your office on the second floor of the West Wing and Laura was just in there doing her own thing. She said, hey, how you doing? I'm like, hi, I'm Ashley. It was such a welcoming place for me, but also Laura. And I know you talk about this a lot in your book about the importance of your child being able to feel welcome in your work environment. Why did you make that commitment to Laura as a child, but also feel that it was important for people around you to know that you were a mom first? The best lessons I got about motherhood came from my own mother. And my mother was a working mom during an era where most moms stayed at home. And I can remember that she used to always say, anytime you need me, call me. And at a very young age, I can uh, visualize dialing the telephone, calling my mom, whoever answered said, I'll go get her. And you could hear whoever was going down the hall and you could hear their footsteps getting fainter and fainter. 
And then I could hear my mother's footsteps getting louder and louder. And actually the sound of her footsteps made me feel at ease, just knowing that she was always there. And I didn't sound like I called her every day, but I knew that I had a lifeline when I needed it. And so when I made up my mind, and I was in a obviously really high power job in City Hall when Laura was young. And I remember saying to one assistant who did not last that long, I said, (laughs) I remember this story. If Laura calls me, you have to put her through. And I was in a meeting behind closed doors. And when I came out, she said, oh, Laura called. And I said, anytime Laura calls, put her through. And she said, Laura said it wasn't important. I said, a five-year-old doesn't get to decide. I decide. If she wants to call me, I will know in 30 seconds listening to her voice, whether it's something that she really needs me or I can say, sweetheart, I'll call you back. And in fact, in uh, Michelle Obama's book, she tells this story about being in my office when we worked together in City Hall. And this is long before she had kids. And Laura called and we were in a meeting with these high powered developers and my assistant this time put Laura through. And she tells the story like as we were having the stern negotiation. And then I said, oh, excuse me for a minute. I go, hello, sweetie. How are you? How's your day? (laughs) And she said, she thought, oh, you get to do that? It's okay. And I came back when the call was over. I was like, all right, let's get back to business. You've heard me tell the story often about Mayor Daly, who was a little terrifying at the time I worked for him being in his office. And, you know, I'm looking at my watch and Susan Schur, who went on to be the first lady's chief of staff was corporation counsel. She's looking at hers. And finally he's like, what's up? Why are you guys looking at your watches? And we didn't know him that well then. We were pretty afraid of him. And in this moment of truth that I'm not sure I would have had the courage to do if Susan hadn't also been in there with me, I said, sir, the Halloween parade starts in 20 minutes and we're 25 minutes away. And he said, then what are you doing here? And Ashley, to this day, I would do anything for that man because I remember the relief of feeling, oh, you get it. We're both single moms. If we don't show up, there'll be nobody there. And look, a Halloween parade isn't life or death. But when we arrived at the school- to a kid. <laughs> and they come out looking for us yes. and, and we are there. So I realized from my own younger experiences how it meant for me as a child to have my mother available and how relieved I was that Mayor Daly got it as well. And I thought, well, I have to do the same thing for other people so that they appreciate I have it. And I can't just presume that they know it. You have to reinforce it and you have to tell it and you have to constantly give people permission because our society, frankly, isn't stacked that way. And building the culture, as we really tried to do in the White House, that was supportive of working families, where we took a beat to say, hey, what's going on in your day? Are you all right? And you learn a lot about people when you open up to them and then they open up to you. I want to talk a little bit about your book, Finding My Voice. First, why did you feel like it was important to name your book that? You're someone with so much power. You best friends with the first lady and president, longest serving senior advisor. How could you ever not actually know your own voice? I think we're all a work in progress. And I think when I tell my story and I explain to people that I was a very, very painfully shy child and I didn't have a lot of self-confidence. And even though I went to some crazy good schools, I kept thinking it was a mistake that I, you know, they made a mistake when they let me in. And it took me a long time to really appreciate and own the most important one. And that's the voice inside of you that tells you things that you need to hear that are sometimes inconsistent with what other people tell you. And you have to learn to trust your own voice before you can use that voice to be a force for good for others. And I learned a lot about my own voice working in city government in Chicago because I joined government. Number one, I was very miserable working at a big law firm. Mayor Harold Washington had just been reelected mayor of Chicago. He was the first black mayor, beginning his second term. And a really good friend of me said, girl, you are so miserable. Why don't you 
explore public service, you'll be a part of something bigger than yourself. And something about that phrase resonated with me. And in local government, Ashley, your constituents are proximate. You can't get away from them. They follow you in the grocery store down the aisle. They come up to you in the dry cleaner. They're playing, you're playing with your kids in the park. They're right there. They have your phone number, your address. They know how to get a hold of you. And it's 24-7. And that's how it should be. You should learn to take that deep breath, to listen to people, to realize that public service means you are a public servant in service of others. And that's the other thing I think you learn as a parent is you do have to be in tune with your children and you have to listen to them real carefully and you have to be present. And I learned at community meetings in Chicago how to be present and how to let people yell and scream and express their frustrations when you show up and you're like, I'm from the government, I'm here to help you. And they're like, no, that's not been my history. And you know what? They're right. And recognizing that it was going to take not just one interaction for them to appreciate that my heart was in it and I was going to do everything for them, I had to build a relationship with them. I think one of the themes in my book is about building relationships. And yes, it might be with the president and first lady, former president, first lady, or it could be with community organizers who to this day, I always stay in touch with when I go back home to Chicago. Many of them who were not very happy with me early on for fear of what we were going to do to their neighborhoods. And so learning how to earn trust and recognize that it is an ongoing development in a relationship. You don't just earn it and then you're done. You have to constantly do it. I think those were really good lessons that I learned early in my career as well. You mentioned not always thinking you belong. Till the very last day when I would swap my badge to get into the grounds of the White House, I just knew one day it wasn't going to work because they would have found out that I didn't deserve to be there. But every morning I would get to go through and then once I changed roles in the White House, would come up to your office for our morning meeting And I don't know what it is about you, but I will tell you, I always felt like I had a place there because you always asked what my opinion was and you could tell when I wasn't being honest and you could tell I was a crybaby. You could tell when I was about to cry, but you always just created the space for me to be my full human self. So thank you. You know, I love you dearly. I treasured really watching you blossom and find your voice. And I can remember, I have these vivid (laughs) memories that first time I said to you, no, you're going to run the meeting. You're like, no, you're what? running the meeting. What are you talking about? You're running the meeting because you actually know the nuts and bolts and much more than I do. And I wanted you to run the meeting so that when you left my office, you were empowered. And I I'll wanted the people there see you in that role with me supporting you, not leading you in order that you would be able to lead them. I tell the story all the time. And I do it to people on my team all the time. Now, sometimes people feel like you have to be emboldened with power. And sometimes people just can place you in the right position to lead. And you definitely did the latter. If there's a young mom or even a a mom with adult children, how did you find a way to keep space for Laura and your mom and your family and people like me who you meet and they've been, you feel so connected? How did you do it all? Well, you have to prioritize. And you have to do what's important to you and you have to make room for it. And sometimes that means that you're not perfect at everything, like most of the time. Something has to give. So, you know, this whole notion of can you have it all, I think it's nonsense. Everything's full of trade-offs. And so if you're doing one thing really, really well, that means that something else might slip or you get help. And I know early on when I was a single mom and I was so miserable, when my marriage failed, I thought I was a failure. And it took me a long time to kind of build myself back up. And I attributed to Laura. Because I looked at that little baby and I was like, oh my, well, who's going to take care of her? And then I realized, oh, 
I'm the one that's got to take care of her. I better, you know, put my big girl pants on. And I also wanted to do something that would make her proud of me. But I look back on those early years. I had a good job. I had health insurance. I had a sitter who started working for us when Laura was three months old and she and I packed up Laura to go to college. My parents lived a mile away. My dad took my daughter to school and picked her up every day from nursery school through high school. I had everything going for me in terms of a safety net and I still felt like I was hanging on by my fingertips. And some of it, it was cultural and structural when I was in a big law firm. But when I moved to the city and I had a mentor of my own who was very supportive, I still felt like I was holding on by my fingertips. And I realized, you know what? It's just hard. And so what a part of what I want to say is to young working moms particularly is there's nothing wrong with you. I kept thinking, well, if I were just smarter or better organized or more efficient or slept fewer hours, maybe it wouldn't be so hard. No, it's just hard raising children. And it's hard raising children and working. And so part of why the work we did at the White House Council on Women and Girls was so personal for Tina and for me is because we had been young single moms, but young single moms with resources. And we, for the 30 years that we've known each other, we would think to ourselves, well, what it's like for those working moms who are going paycheck to paycheck, who don't have a safety net, who are really worried about putting food on the table, paying the rent, and go without taking care of their health care to make sure that their children are safe. And so what can we do structurally to make life easier on those working families? And what can we do culturally to make the environment one where I could speak up and say, sir, there's a Halloween parade and take something like paid leave. You know, I'm very big on national paid leave policy. Men and women, same amount. In the White House, men and women in our administration had three months each. But it wasn't until like a Josh Ernest or a Jason Furman, two senior men took paternity leave, the full three months, that people went, oh, oh, that's okay here, right? And I think because my mom was so important and a central figure in my life and such a role model and mentor for me, I wanted to do the same for Laura. And I think I wanted to do something that would make Laura proud that I was her mother. And that meant that I had to work really hard. And look, she I have a note in the other room that she wrote when she was like six. Dear mom, please come home. It makes me so sad when you're away. Come home every night. And every day when I would leave, she'd go, are you coming home tonight? And it would break my heart when I had to say, no, honey, I have to work late. She said when she read my book, Ashley, she couldn't believe how guilty I felt because she thought she had the perfect mom. And she said, I taught her how to be a working mother and that she knew I was there. She knew I loved her. She's the most important thing I've ever done in my life is to be a mother. I felt at the law firm that if I told anybody I was pregnant, I gained 90 pounds. Everybody knew I was pregnant. Right. I didn't want to talk about it, right? So I, so I thought, well, if I tell them I'm pregnant or if I tell them I'm taking her to a doctor's appointment, people will think I'm not committed to work. And I think that was a mistake. I think I should have talked about being pregnant. I think the guys would have done well to know a little bit more about what it's like to have a pregnant woman around. So we have a responsibility to educate too. And so part of finding your voice is learning to stick up for yourself. Or if you see somebody who can't stick up for themselves, well, then you better use your voice to stick up for them too. You mentioned Laura a lot in your last answer, and she is celebrating her first Mother's Day. What has it been like to see her become a mom and you get to be a grandmother? Well, so I just released my paperback book, Ashley, and you're going to unfortunately have to buy that too. I will. It has two new chapters in it. I guess, yes. the, The last chapter is about being a grandmother. And I talk about what it was like to, well, first of all, I was in San Diego when she went into labor. And so if you can imagine trying to get home from San Diego before she has this baby, and thank goodness I had Wi-Fi on the airplane. So long story short, her labor turned out to be very, very long. So I got back in plenty of time. 
But while I was sitting and waiting to see the baby, because she had to have a C-section, so only her husband could go in. And that was a thing. They said only one person can go in, and I've been a single mom, and this is my child, and we're close, and I realized that I'm not going to be the person <laughs> who gets to go in. I pay to be a fly on that one. <laughs> I, I had to lower my voice and dig deep, and I said, of course, Tony, you'll go in. So the, I'm not going to do a spoiler, but the last chapter is looking at the world through the eyes of my now black and brown grandson and the, some of the challenges that he's going to face that Laura didn't have to face because she's a woman. Some of the opportunities that he'll have that maybe Laura wouldn't have. And what kind of a man I want him to be. I mean, well, how I want him to treat people, how I want him to look at his responsibility as a citizen of the world. And what I want to do to help him understand that the family that he's been born into is one with a very long legacy where we have a history in our family that has been passed on from generation to generation. And that is a rich and wonderful history. And I want him to feel a sense of belonging to that because I think, you know, our roots are important. As a young person, my grandmother used to always tell me all these stories about my grandparents and my great-grandparents and my great-great-great-grandparents. And it kind of washed over me until I got older. And now I realize, oh my gosh, what must that have been like? And someone said to me once, well, does that make you feel like I can never live up to that? Or does that make you feel like, oh, well, this should be easy? And it's neither. It's just like, it's a responsibility to just continue to do better and to do the best you can. My parents love me unconditionally provided me with a safety net of support and set very high expectations, not of my title in life, but what I would do for others. So Valerie, you've had an amazing career in public service. So I want to ask you, for people who are thinking about pursuing a career in public service, what advice would you give them? I have spent now half of my career in the private sector and half in the public sector. And I would tell you that my absolute worst days in the public sector, and as you know, Ashley, we had some really tough days. Yes, we did. Were more rewarding than my best in the private. And so if you feel as though you have a skill set and something to offer, there's nothing more satisfying than feeling that you're leaving your community, your city, your state, your country a little bit better than you found it. It's just incredibly satisfying for me. Where my passion is, is really to try to get people to feel creative and engaged and empowered to be civically minded. And goodness knows you are exhibit A for that. And I think you are a role model for your generation in a way that I can't possibly be. And so I'm calling on you to spread the word. So public service, do it for yourself full time. You don't have to do it for your whole career. It destigmatizes perceptions. When I first went to work for city government, a lot of people who knew me said, well, why would you go work there? They don't work very hard. Well, I worked harder in city government than I have Ever. practically anywhere else, right? Yes. <laughs> and so you, you see it from the inside and you gain respect for career public servants who've dedicated their lives to service and who often aren't celebrated in the headlines, but are working every day for you and for me. And you have this opportunity to, to give back. And if you don't want to do it full time, well, then go vote and make sure that the people who do want to do it, who reflect your values and your priorities are in office, and then go volunteer and do something, work for not-for-profits part-time, be on the board, go tutor at a school. There's just so much we could all be doing. And look, in this environment, we're all kind of in a way on hold, but in a way not on hold. I don't know about you, but I'm finding I'm spending more time FaceTiming with my mother than I, than I yeah, ever have. So maybe part of this is a wake-up call that we need to catch our breath and exhale from time to time and appreciate what we have. 
Well, thank you so much, Valerie Jarrett, for being on Pod for the Cause. Thank you for being you, for doing everything you have for this country, for being- Right back at you, honey. My work mom, and most importantly, happy Mother's Day. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, and stay safe, Ashley. Thanks again to the incredible Valerie Jarrett for joining us on Pod for the Cause. Coming up, I'm going to hit you with some real talk during my hot takes, where I get a few things off of my chest in three minutes or less. I know I act a fool, but I promise you I'm going back to school. I appreciate what you allow for me, and I just want you to be proud. Welcome back to Pod for the Cause. And between the Pod Squad, our moms joining us, and Valerie Jarrett, I have a few things I need to say. Last year, we launched Pod for the Cause, and we were joined by two moms who were impacted by police violence. Their sons were killed. And for Marion Gray Hopkins and Rhonda Dormius, Mother's Day will never be the same. This episode, we were able to laugh and pay homage to our moms and the great work that they've done to raise us, as well as the great work Valerie Jarrett has done to change our country. On Pod for the Cause, we know that joy and pain can be present in the same moment. We also know there is lingering injustice that we cannot stand for. Throughout this pandemic, healthcare workers have risen to the occasion taking care of folks. People have done random acts of kindness, and we've been able to see the best and worst in people. But the lingering injustice continues to persist. We've seen protesters storm the Capitol because barbershops are closed. Some of these protests have even become violent, with no repercussions to those who are inciting the anger many of these protests have been organized by white supremacy groups who are the same type of folks who organized the rally, the deadly rally in Charlottesville just a few years ago. This is lingering injustice because when you remember how the protesters in Ferguson were treated after Michael Brown was killed, the pain that so many mothers are feeling on this Mother's Day is because of the lingering injustice. This past February, unfortunately, another mother was introduced to that pain. Her son, Ahmad Aubrey, was killed in cold blood by two men who were claiming to make a citizen's arrest. This death happened in Georgia in February, but it's May, and we're just learning about it because a videotape surfaced. Now, I haven't watched the tape for many reasons, but mostly because it would bring me too much pain. But this is what lingering injustice looks like. This is what we must stand up to. I'm outraged because of the silence from February to May. I'm outraged because yet again, another person of color, a black man, was killed in cold blood. We're in a worse situation than we were when we launched the show a year ago, shining light on this very issue. I don't have a call to action for you today. I don't want to tell you how to feel, but I am going to share the truth. Lingering injustice must be dismantled. You know, I know we're celebrating Mother's Day, but so many will not be able to have joy. And so for that, I am extending heartfelt love and compassion to those moms. I also want to send compassion and love to the children who are also missing their moms. But most importantly, I am counting my blessings every single day that this year, and for so many years, I have been able to say, even if this year it's through a screen, 
Happy Mother's Day to my mom. When I was young, me and my mama had beef. 17 years old, kicked out on the streets. Though back at the time, I never thought I'd see a face. Ain't a woman alive that could take my mama's place. Suspended from school, I'm scared to go home. I was a fool with the big boys breaking all the rules. Thanks for listening to Pod for the Cause, the official podcast of the Leadership Conference on Silver and Human Rights and the Leadership Conference Education Fund. For more information, check us out at civilrights.org. And to connect with me, hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at Pod for the Cause. And we're trying something new here. Text podcast to 21333 to get updates from us right on your phone. Be sure to subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast app and leave a five-star review. Until then, for Pod for the Cause, I'm Ashley Allison. And remember, a cause is nothing without the people. You all appreciate it. Dear Mama. You all appreciate it.